As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's go down. Come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down, come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, fathers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, fathers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, mothers, let's go down. Come on down, don't you want to go down? Come on, mothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sinners, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sinners, let's go down, down in the river to pray. Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 29th of May. In today's podcast we're looking at a story from the Acts of the Apostles in which Paul and Silas get into a spot of bother. Unusually, the story we're looking at in the podcast is not the one that we'll be considering in our on-site service this weekend when four people will be baptised. However, there is a link between the podcast and the on-site service in that our passage here ends with a baptism. And we started today with a song that's associated with baptism down in the river to pray, the river being where people would have gone to be baptised in the olden days. Other songs today are sung by Chris Tomlin and Brad Paisley. Some notices. The church magazine for June is available from the cafe or foyer and it can also be viewed or downloaded from the church website. 
The City Centre Baptists and Methodists are responsible for the Thy Kingdom Come prayers in the Cathedral on Tuesday next week at 8pm. As well as our usual 10.30 service next Sunday, there will be church in the cafe at 4pm when we will welcome the Vocal family home from Nepal where they work with BMS World Mission. The church cafe will be open from 10 till 2 over the Jubilee holiday weekend and cream teas will be served on Thursday and Friday. And finally on the subject of the cafe, we're still advertising for staff. Please see the advert in today's email or it can be viewed on the church website. If it will be of interest to anyone you know, then please do pass it on. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name.
Come, let us pray and sing hymns to the Lord. Let us seek his blessing on those to whom we witness, to both friends and strangers, those in the community around us and those far across the world. All-powerful God, we worship in the power of peace against the power of violence. We sing in the power of praise against the power of bitterness. We pray in the power of hope against the power of despair. And we celebrate the power of love against the power of hatred. Sustain us, God of goodness, when we face the challenge of confrontation. Give us courage to speak out when we see exploitation and strength to stand up for your values, that day by day your world may be transformed and your kingdom come. But also forgive us, gracious God, that we are quick to complain and grumble when things get tough. Forgive us that we make dark places darker by our own bitterness. Forgive us that we praise you only when all is well and blame you when things go wrong. Forgive us and release us from all that holds us back from trusting you. Amen. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. 
The 16th chapter of Acts is significant because it's the first time that we are told that the gospel reached Europe. Until this point, more than halfway through the account of the Acts of the Apostles, the gospel has remained in what we now call the continent of Asia. Jesus had promised that the Spirit of God would lead the apostles to take the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and onwards to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, tick. Judea, tick. Samaria, tick. But the ends of the earth were still a way off. There's some debate over the meaning of this expression, the ends of the earth. It's somewhat unusual in that while it's usually translated as a plural word, ends, the word is actually singular. There are some Old Testament occasions when the end of the earth is used, but it adds to the uncertainty over what it might mean. The most commonly held view is that the end of the earth is Rome. This was definitely Paul's final destination at the end of the account in Acts. However, if Rome were to have been considered the centre of the world, then the farthest western reaches of the Roman Empire might have been considered to be the end of the earth. We know that Paul certainly had it in mind to go to Spain, the farthest westerly point in Rome's empire. Acts chapter 16 is the first time that we're told that Paul stepped into Europe. His original plan had been to head north through the centre of what we call Turkey to reach the province of Bithynia on Turkey's northern Black Sea coast. But God led them away from this plan and instead they travelled west towards the Aegean coast and to Troas. There Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man calling Paul and his companions to come across the sea to Europe. They landed at Neapolis and from there travelled a short distance inland to Philippi. Paul's practice on the Sabbath was to go to the synagogue and in Philippi he went to the riverbank outside the city because it was here that the Philippian Jews met to pray. You see the word synagogue, like the word church, means a gathering rather than a building. We see that despite Paul's feelings about how Jews and Gentiles are no different in God's sight, Paul's first target congregation was the Jews living wherever he went. As we've heard before, these congregations were not made up exclusively of Jews, as there were Gentiles, known as God-fearers, who joined them. While they were not Jews, they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, alongside those who were themselves children of Abraham. Cornelius, for example, the Roman centurion whom Paul befriended was one of these, as was, in all likelihood, the Ethiopian official whom Philip met. And now here in Philippi we hear about Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, who was one of those women who met by the river. Lydia wasn't a local. She had come from Thyatira, a town back across the sea in Turkey. But she heard Paul speak about Jesus, and God opened her heart, so that she responded and was baptised. Lydia was the first Christian convert in Europe that the Bible reports, and the first baptism that the Bible tells us that Paul performed. Now all this is by way of introduction to our passage today, in which we find Paul and Silas having remained in Philippi. There are a number of rather odd occurrences described in our reading. Firstly, Paul casts out a spirit from a slave girl. Nothing odd about that, you might think, in the context of the New Testament. It wasn't unusual for Jesus, or later on the apostles, to carry out exorcisms. What is odd about this one is Paul's motivation. 
We're told that the girl followed Paul around and kept shouting out that these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. What a nerve, going around telling these lies about Paul and his companions. Oh, but hang on a moment. These weren't lies, as this was exactly what Paul and the others were doing. So why was Paul getting steamed up about it? There are a few options that we might consider. One is that it would be pretty tiresome having someone following you around and shouting all the time. Another reason might be that Paul wanted to be a little more discreet about his mission and having someone effectively going round with a loud hailer telling everyone his business may not have suited Paul's purpose if he hoped to travel under the radar. While I have a sneaking suspicion that there is an element of truth in both of these reasons, I suspect that we are being told this story because it demonstrates that a. Paul's mission is a continuation of that of Jesus, who was also correctly identified by spirits that possessed people. But also b. That in casting out the demon, Paul was demonstrating that in this new world of European mission, pagan spirits were powerless against the spirit of Jesus. This part of the story has some elements of farce around it. A young slave girl following Paul around, shouting out about what he's doing. Then Paul, having cast out the evil spirit, the girl's owner getting angry because this nice little sideline that he had going on, the girl earning him money by fortune-telling, had come to an abrupt halt. It reminded me of that scene in Life of Brian when an ex-leper was begging rather unsuccessfully since Jesus had healed him and taken away his source of income. However farcical it might seem, at the heart of this story is a young woman who's been exploited by her owner for his own ends. It's easy to believe that she was telling the truth, but this is a case of evil seeking to ally itself with the truth of the gospel for its own purposes. Paul resisted the temptation to be seduced by the Spirit's words and allow this Spirit to become a fellow traveller. When Paul called out the Spirit, it complied and the girl seemingly becomes normal again. She could no longer foretell the future or read hearts and minds, but she was freed from the domination of wickedness. Her well-being, for Paul, was far more important than the Spirit's flattering false praise. In a very simple way, this story illustrates the cost of following Jesus. The young woman was still a slave, but now she was a slave who was less useful to her master. And it's hard to imagine that this made him a more kindly master. The slave girl disappears from the scene at this point, and we now move to the effect of Paul's action on the slave owners. They are understandably angry with Paul and Silas at the way that their income stream has been removed. Their reaction is to haul the apostles into the market square where they face the town's authorities. Paul and Silas are in foreign territory here. Back in Palestine, they faced criticism for preaching Jesus to Jews. Here in Philippi, they faced a different accusation. This was that they were Jews who were causing trouble by trying to introduce their foreign Jewish practices that were illegal for Roman citizens to adopt. Now, of course, this accusation wasn't accurate in that Paul and Silas were not advocating that Roman citizens became Jews but we can't expect local Philippian magistrates to appreciate the subtleties of difference between Christianity and Judaism. As far as they were concerned, Paul and Silas were Jews and they were causing trouble. 
ipso facto, the root of the problem was that they were Jews. Ban the Jews, build a wall, the trouble with you people. Our modern issues surrounding religion and those who are different are nothing new. The problem in Philippi was economic, not religious. It was the same in Ephesus when there was a riot because Paul was leading people away from worshipping Artemis, which meant that the bloke making silver Artemis charms was losing business and got upset. It's all about the money. Later on in this chapter, we can see that Paul and Silas could easily have made these charges go away, but, and this is another oddity in this case, they chose not to do so. The slave owners whipped up the crowd and the magistrates ordered Paul and Silas to be flogged. After this beating, the two men were thrown into prison with orders that they be carefully guarded. And that detail is significant, bearing in mind what comes later. Paul and Silas don't seem to have been downhearted by this turn of events and were singing hymns and praying into the night. The other prisoners were, by the very definition, a captive audience. That Paul and Silas were singing may sound unusual, but there is a modern example of singing in the face of death. You might remember some years ago a group of convicted drug smugglers were executed in Indonesia. Some of them had been committed Christians during their years of incarceration on death row. And as they stood facing the firing squad, they sang Matt Redman's song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Earthquakes are not uncommon in that part of the world, still the same today. But while it's not explicitly mentioned, it's clear that God is behind what happened in order that Paul and Silas might be freed. We're intended to see this as the miracle it was, rather than as a natural event. God's power had been demonstrated here in the same way that it had been demonstrated in the event that led to Paul and Silas being in jail. The power of God that had got Paul and Silas into this mess was the same power that would get them out of it. Now we see the relevance of the note that the jailer was to guard these prisoners carefully. He'd done the best he could, put them in his deepest dungeon and chaining them up in stocks. But this wasn't enough when it was God who was on the other side of this tug of war. Paul's chains fell off and he was free to escape. But he didn't. Paul saw that the consequence of their escape would be the loss of the life of a dearly loved human being, in which case their rescue via the earthquake would not be of God. The jailer can only fall before Paul and Silas in his shock and gratitude. And through this, he becomes a convert to Christianity, illustrating his new perspective by taking Paul and Silas into his own house, feeding them, dressing their wounds and rejoicing, believing in God with all his house. And that last phrase is important, for with it, as in the conversion of Lydia at the beginning of this chapter, Luke explains the rapid spread of Christianity by noting that just one stirred believer can influence the faith of a household, a neighbourhood, a region. I mentioned that Paul and Silas could have saved themselves something of the trouble that came their way when they were taken before the magistrates, beaten and thrown into jail. And the final part of the story explains how. The jailer had taken Paul and Silas back to his house. He'd cleaned up their wounds, and after he and his household had been baptised, he laid out a feast in honour of Paul and Silas and to celebrate his baptism. 
The next day, the magistrates sent word to the jailer that Paul and Silas should be released. Our text doesn't explain the reason why, but it may have been as a result of the earthquake and perhaps fearing that this was an act of God, that the magistrates felt that they might be risking the wrath of Paul and Silas's God if they kept them in prison any longer. The assumption would surely be that now, with the jailer safe from the responsibility of their escape, Paul and Silas would walk free, but not a bit of it. For this is where Paul plays his joker and reveals that this was an unsafe and even an illegal prosecution. It's only now that Paul reveals that he and Silas are Roman citizens. Luke, our narrator, feels that there is no need to explain the significance of this, but we might need to know a little more than we are given. To be a Roman citizen afforded certain rights above and beyond those who are simply members of a conquered nation. We're never told how this was so, but we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that, as well as being a Jew and indeed a Pharisee, Paul also held Roman citizenship. And one of these rights was that it was forbidden for a Roman citizen to be flogged. Not only that, but due process of law had not been followed. This was an embarrassment for the authorities, and there was a reasonable fear that Paul could make trouble for them. Having been accused of making trouble for the slave owners, Paul could now make legal trouble for the magistrates. The boot was seemingly on the other foot. Paul told the officers who came to set him free that they were not going to slink off quietly. They'd done nothing wrong, and they'd been treated badly. They were not going to accept a pardon, and Paul demanded that the magistrates themselves come to escort them out. Paul wanted his long walk to freedom moment, a la Nelson Mandela from Robben Island. He wasn't going to accept release out the back door before dawn. He'd been thrown into jail in disgrace, and he wanted to walk out the front door, free with honour. The magistrates came to see Paul and tried to appease him and encourage him to leave town. Whatever the rights and wrongs of what had happened, it could only improve the situation if Paul and Silas weren't around. So the two apostles went back to Lydia's home where they met the brothers and sisters, presumably the first members of the Philippian church, and then they did indeed leave town. It's important to note the difference of Christianity and its refusal to sacrifice anyone, even an ill-regarded slave or a jailer, for gain or expediency. Everyone, the Acts of the Apostles makes clear, is important to God, and so an act of God could not be based on injury to anyone. Someone has written that Christianity offers its own version of the Hippocratic Oath that details the duties and obligations of physicians. Above all, do no harm is the principal duty, and that same charge is exhibited in these two instances in Acts. Instead of the untimely death of the jailer, there is baptism and unexpected new life. I wonder just how much Paul manipulated what happened in Philippi for his own ends, or rather, for the sake of the gospel. He could have avoided the conflict with the authorities, but without that confrontation, there would have been no imprisonment and therefore no conversion of the jailer. Here is an example of passive resistance, of non-violent protest, not unlike that of Gandhi, or Martin Luther King Jr. in the Selma March in 1965. Sometimes it's necessary to take the hits, whether literal or metaphorical, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's truth. 
The stories in this passage can be seen to be about truth and consequences. The gospel empowers those who proclaim its truth to withstand the aftershocks. Paul takes his flogging. Civil rights marchers are beaten and more by police. Pastors lose members when they take stands or break rules. Jesus speaks the truth all the way to the cross. The gospel's truth and its consequences for those who carry it are inextricably linked. The good news will be spread only if we, like Paul, do not turn and run. The calling of Jesus is a tough one. It's a calling to be both loving and confrontational. We are called to love people and in so loving we will sometimes need to confront those people, those processes, those institutions which cause others harm. It's through the love that we offer as we give ourselves to the world that the world will know of the love of the God who gave himself that the world might be saved. Mercy reigns 
Let us pray. Come, Lord Jesus, into situations of imprisonment in our world today. For those imprisoned against their will, exploited and abused. For those imprisoned by special needs that the world doesn't understand or have time for. For those imprisoned by the darkness of depression and anxiety. For those imprisoned by addictions. For those imprisoned by their pursuit of wealth. For those imprisoned by fears of any kind. Come, Lord Jesus, and set your people free. Amen.
our final song sung by Brad Paisley is really a hangover from two weeks ago when we were thinking about heaven. But first, a final prayer. May the love of God free you to live with confidence. The example of Jesus free you to serve those in need. And the power of the Holy Spirit help you to overcome all that would darken the world. Amen. When I get where I'm going On the far side of the sky The first thing that I'm gonna do Spread my wings and fly I'm gonna land beside a lion And run my fingers through his mane Or I might find out what it's like To ride a drop of rain Yeah, when I get where I'm going There'll be only happy tears I will shed the sins and struggles I have carried all these years And I'll leave my heart wide open I will love and have no fear Yeah, when I get where I'm going Don't cry for me down here I'm gonna walk with my granddaddy He'll match me step for step And I'll tell him how I've missed him Every minute since he left And then I'll hug his neck Yeah, when I get where I'm going There'll be only happy tears I will shed the sins and struggles I have carried all I see my maker's face I'll stand forever in the light of his amazing grace